You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome, everybody, to uh, Temple Bethel, to Six Spectacular Scriptures. It's really nice to be here with everybody tonight. Um, and uh, in particular, if uh, um, uh, this is uh, your first time at Temple Bethel or your first time in a while at Temple Bethel, it's really nice to see you and to be with you and to learn together tonight. Um, before we learn, I was hoping that uh, we could uh, start with a, a brief prayer. Um, so I hope you'll join me, with me uh, to pray. Ribono uh, Shalom, Majesty of Space and Time, uh, we pray that you enable us to open up our hearts and our minds to enable us to enter into the text and to let the text enter into us, to give us the openness and the expansiveness and the possibility of uh, transforming our life through the words of your Torah. And we pray that our learning tonight um, is for the sake of advanced uh, justice and peace uh, in our community and uh, in Israel and around the world. Uh, and we say, Amen. Amen. Tonight we are talking about climbing Jacob's ladder and wrestling with God. These are two of my favorite texts in all of the Torah. Um, Taken from chapter 28 and chapter uh, 32 of Genesis, um, respectively. Pieces of each of those chapters, at least. Um, And they really cover the lot of it. So, have you ever left home? Have you ever gone on a journey? Have you ever gone on a trip? Have you ever struggled with doubt and self-doubt? Have you ever had fear and anxiety? Have you ever felt that maybe you weren't living up to be everything that you were supposed to be or that at least other people expected you to be? Did you ever have a model or a standard in your life that you were holding yourself up to outside of yourself that you constantly, even though people outside of you may not have been holding you up to that standard, you yourself were always holding you up, yourself up to that standard? Does that resonate with anybody here? I think it resonates with me. Have you ever had dark times? Have you ever experienced pain or loss or, uh, or, or, or uh, even, God forbid, depression? And have you ever had an opportunity to learn something about yourself through those dark times? So I'm seeing a lot of nods in the room, and I think that those are pretty universal human experiences. Uh, They are certainly experiences that I've had in my life uh, and continue to have in my life. Um, And because of that, all of those experiences, all of those emotions, all of those feelings, I feel like are packed into these two texts. They, They ring out from the character of Jacob in the Torah. And so periodically in my life and regularly in my life, I check back in with Jacob. I look back at these stories because they provide me, I think, a lot of guidance, a lot of wisdom, a lot of security, sometimes a lot of uh, commisery um, 
in terms of whatever, whatever it is I'm going through. Doubts, anxieties, uh, sense of self-worth, feeling whether I'm stacking up or, or living up to other people's expectations of me. We all go through these things. Um, painful moments, we all go through these things. And so Jacob, I think, holds out a model for um, how to navigate through those experiences and maybe in some cases what not to do. Okay, so that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about Jacob. I want to talk about uh, two of the major journeys, the major moments in Jacob's life. These are these are really the two dark nights of Jacob's life that we're going to focus on. There are lots of stories about Jacob in the book of uh, Genesis. About half of the book of Genesis deals with Jacob and his family. Um, he's really the uh, primary patriarch in the sense that the twelve tribes of Israel come from uh, come from him. Um, and so much of the book of Genesis deals with them. There's lots of stories about Jacob. I'm focusing on these two because I think they, they are the most revealing stories about who Jacob is. And I think the most um, psychologically rich stories uh, and the ones that resonate most uh, have resonated most in, in my life. They're also, I think, two of the most beautiful stories and complex stories in the Torah. Um, so what I want to do is I want to just kind of go through uh, the, the texts that we have, um, much as we did last week, and, uh, and uh, have opportunity, I hope, um, certainly at the end for, uh, for conversations and questions, but I also want this to be somewhat free-flowing. So if you have a comment, a question, an idea, um, as we go on, I, I encourage you to uh, please uh, uh, interject. Okay. So I'm on the front page, chapter 28 of Genesis, verse 10. And I'll go through in Hebrew just uh, in the interest of time. Jacob left Be'er and set out for Haran. All right. Before we get too much into unpacking that verse, what can you tell me about Jacob? About Jacob prior to this story, prior to his leaving Be'er and setting out for Haran. What do we know about Jacob, the early years. What do we know about Jacob? Well, he was his mother's favorite. Okay, he was his mother's favorite. Anybody know why he was his mother's favorite? Because he was not a hunter. He was a, he was a gentleman. A gentleman. A gentleman and a gentleman, right? Uh, he uh, was Ish Yoshev Ohalot, the text says. He was a person who dwelled in tents. He was what we used to call some of the kids in camp when I was a camp counselor. He was an indoor kid. Right, um, the rabbis, the rabbis of the midrash say that uh, say that that meant he spent all of his time studying Torah. He was a scholar. He was a learner. Uh, maybe that's what he was doing. Uh, he was uh, reported to spend most of his time at the uh, midrash, uh, the Beit Midrash of Shem and Ever. Shem was one of the sons of Noah. Ever was one of Shem's sons, and apparently those two uh, righteous ch- children or grandchildren of Noah uh, created a Beit Midrash, a study hall um, at which Jacob ended up being a pupil according to the rabbis of the Midrash. So Jacob was a a mild-mannered kid, a dweller of tents, whether that meant he just preferred the indoors or whether it meant he was a scholar and in part for that reason uh, his mother loved him. There's actually another reason why his mother loved him. Does anybody know? First of all, who is, who is his mother? Rebecca. Rebecca. Good. Did you say that? You might have said that. Uh, Rebecca, okay. It was hairy, wasn't 
No, actually, his brother Asaph was hairy. His brother Asaph was, uh, according to the text, covered with red hair from uh, head to foot. He was sort of like animal uh, from the Muppets. Uh, I don't know if he played drums as well, but he was like animal. From the Muppets. Yeah. He, uh, uh, she, uh, had a prophecy uh, that came in a dream um, as she was pregnant with her with her twins. Good. So these are the days before sonograms, right? And when you are pregnant in the ancient world, um, you don't know really what's going on in there. So when you have twins, it's a surprise, right? Um, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, you know, they had to go back to the store, buy another stroller and another <laughs> crib, right? So she is barren for a time, and uh, Isaac prays for her. She gets pregnant. And she ends up being pregnant with twins. She doesn't know it. She just feels um, struggling in her womb. She thinks there's something wrong with the baby. There's no sonogram. She can't figure out what's going on. So God comes to her. and it, So she says, she, she goes to inquire of God. This is, an ama- this is an amazing story in and of itself in the Torah. She goes to inquire of God. This is the first time in the Torah the, the Hebrew root, Dalit Resh Shin, is used. Which means uh, to inquire, investigate. But it's the same root as Midrash which means uh, to investigate into the meaning of the text. So she goes to inquire of God, and, and she says the most amazing phrase, it doesn't really have anything to do with what we're saying today, although maybe it does in a way. She says, Im ken lama ze anochi. If this is so, why am I me? Right? If this is so, why do I exist? If this is so, if, I'm, if for what I prayed uh, is all this pain and suffering, why did it even happen to me? Right? What did I do to deserve this? That's what she says of God. And God answers her by saying, there are actually two children in your womb who represent two nations. They will always battle each other, but the younger, sorry, the older will serve the younger. Okay? So, in part, Rebecca loves Jacob because who was the older twin and who was the younger twin? Esau was the older twin, and Jacob was the younger twin. What else do we know about their birth? Good. So, Jacob came out second, but not without a fight, right? Jacob came out second because, uh, and he was grabbing onto Esau's heel as he came out of the womb. And his mother named him Yaakov from the root Akev, which means ankle, because he's a little, or heel, he's a little heel grabber. He's a little ankle grabber. What is core to Jacob's at least early persona in, in names in the Bible are not chosen at random, right? They're chosen to um, give an insight, a sense into who the person is or who the person is supposed to be. So it's not only that Jacob came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel, but that there's something intrinsic to the character of Jacob that makes him a heel grabber, right? So let's, we'll get to that in a second. But just as another example of how names are meaningful in the Torah, um, the first Jew was before he was named Abraham. His name was Avram, right? Avram. Uh, Avram means father of multitudes, right? Because the promise from God said that he's going to be the father of multitudes, right? So it's, it's not a coincidental name. So neither is Jacob. Jacob isn't an, a coincidental name either. He's named, of course, for grabbing the heel. But what kind of characteristic, internal characteristic, personal characteristic, is, um, might be expressed by the terminology ankle grabber, heel grabber? 
tenacity, okay, maybe he's resilient, maybe he's, he's got fight in him, okay, what else? Go ahead. Competitive, okay, good, right? What kind of, what kind of a competitor tries to grab the ankle of somebody else? A sly one. A sly one, right? I'm thinking, I'm thinking Tanya Harding kind of competitor, right? Not necessarily the most upstanding kind of competitor that you might imagine, because what else do we know about Jacob's early life? What, what other stories do we have about Jacob from his early life? Okay, good. There are two stories having to deal with the blessing or the birthright. What's the first story? Anybody remember? The lentils. Good. Okay. So, Esau, Jacob's brother, uh, I think he gets a bad rap from the rabbis. It seems like from the text of the Torah, he's actually a very well-meaning guy. Um, uh, tries to take care of his father. Uh, maybe something of an oaf. Maybe something of a brute. And so the rabbis don't like him because he's not a Torah scholar. Right? Um, the rabbis don't like him for some other reasons, uh, too, uh, that, that were mainly of their own projection. But Esau is a hunter. He's a man of the field. So he goes out and he hunts one day, and he comes back famished. And Jacob happens to be mixing up a nice bowl of lentil stew, right? And uh, when Aesop comes home, he says to Jacob, oh my gosh, that red stuff looks so great. Please, can I have some of it? And Jacob says, hmm. I know an opportunity when I see it, right? So Jacob says, I'll give you some soup. Sure, you're hungry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just uh, one thing. I want you to sell me your birthright for this stew. And Aesop said, well, what's good, what's my, what good is my birthright to me if I die of starvation? Right? Okay, maybe he was going to die of starvation. Maybe he wasn't. That's a little bit beside the point. Well, what good is it for me? So he decides to sell his birthright for the uh, stew. The birthright, by the way... Uh, is different from the blessing. The birthright is probably related to the laws of inheritance, right? So what property he was going to get from his father. And so basically that means he's, so, he's, he's like the Native Americans who sold Manhattan for uh, a handful of trinkets, right? He sells his birthright for, uh, uh, for a, a pot of stew. And um, now Jacob knows that this is a bum deal, right? It's not like it's not like we could say, oh, Jacob, that's really amazing business sense. We would say about Jacob, that's actually kind of a conniving thing to do, right? To take advantage of somebody who is, who, who's weak and in a position of, of a lack of power um, to, uh, to, to get them to give up something so significant for something so insignificant. He ends up with the birthright because of it, and, and without that, there may not be a Jewish people. But the way he gets it leaves kind of a bad taste in, in one's mouth, I think. And that's, I think... This image of him as Yaakov, an ankle grabber, a heel grabber. And so what's the second story about his, uh, his birthright or the blessing? Yeah, so what's the story? Dressing up like his brother. And his mother dressing him up. Taking Good. advantage of a blind father. Right. Which doesn't really sit very well with one of our patrons. <laughs> right. Good. So uh, Isaac is uh, old in years, and he's uh, um, not able to see very well. And so he uh, wants, he thinks he's going to die soon, wants to give Esau, his firstborn, who... Isaac loves more, um, and you can imagine being at home, you know, um, Isaac saying to Jacob, why can't you be more like Esau, right? And <laughs> Rebecca saying to Esau, why can't you be more like your little brother Jacob? It's not a very nice family dynamic that we have going on, but Isaac is, uh, prefers Esau. Um, 
and sends Esau out to go get uh, some, some dinner so that they can uh, sit down together and give him the blessing. And while Esau is out in the field, Rebekah hatches a plan with Jacob to have Jacob dress up like Esau, pretend that he's Esau, go before uh, Isaac, and take the blessing that would have gone to Esau. Now again, you have um, what, what we, you know, as Jewish readers of the text, we say, well, it's a good thing that that happened, otherwise who knows where the Jewish people would have been. But from the point of view of the, taking the text as the text, it doesn't leave quite a good taste in your mouth either, right? Because... Here we have Jacob getting something that may or may not have ended up being his anyway, but he does it through um, conniving means, and he does it with the assistance of his mother. So it's not only son taking advantage of father, but wife taking advantage of husband. So there's um, a lot that's a little bit unsavory about Jacob's character. And I want you to think about this for a second. Because as opposed to, say, Abraham who had, I think, a very nice name, characterizing the things that he was going to do so positively in his life. And Isaac, who has, I think, a nice name too. Isaac's name means laughter. Maybe it's related to a story that's kind of a dig at Sarah for laughing when God says you're going to have a baby in your old age. But having a name that says laughter, that's a nice name. But Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, the backhanded accomplisher, Right? That's not such a nice thing to wear. So imagine if you had a name that reflected your least desirable quality. And you had to introduce yourself to people that way. You'd say, Hi, I'm adulterer. It's so nice to meet you. Hi, hi, I'm murderer. It's such, I, I really am glad you're here, right? Imagine that that was you. And imagine being Jacob going through life, knowing that one parent loved him, one parent didn't love him as much. His older brother was this rugged outdoorsman, and he was just this tent-dwelling Torah scholar that was never stacking up to his father. And by the way, in the ancient world, it was nice that your mother loved you more than your father, but what you really wanted was your father's blessing. What you really wanted was your father's approval. Imagine being Jacob, not having that, and also wearing his shame on his sleeve about who he was from the moment that he was born and who he continued to be throughout his young life. It was a fate that was branded on him and he couldn't escape from. But escape he does. After he steals the birthright, Esau finds out and pledges to kill him. And so Rebekah encourages Jacob to leave their home and run away to Haran where her family was from and there maybe he'll find a wife. Okay, so what's happening in the story is Jacob running away and running toward the potential of a new life in Haran. So when it says Jacob left Be'er Sheva and set out for Haran, that's what it's talking about. The leaving there is not just a casual, you know, um, strolling outside of home. The leaving there is running away. The leaving there is fleeing. And the amazing thing to think about, I think, is that sometimes we feel like we can run away from our problems only to find out that it's, the problem was actually internal to us. 
we think that our circumstances are what's problematic. So this person made me so angry, right? Or my boss is such a jerk, and that's why I'm in such a bad mood all the time. I got this new rabbi. I got this new rabbi who is impossible to work with, right? Right. And, and you say, if only I got out of that situation, then everything would be better. Right? I just need to leave it. And the truth of the matter is, like, uh, there's a book like this with this title, right? Everywhere you go, there you are. Right? No matter what happens, no matter where you go, you take you with you. So if you have problems in your life, if you have relationship problems, if you are struggling with something, it's very important to check in with yourself and say, how much of this is my circumstance and how much of this is me? And if it's me, there's got to be something that I can do to change me because unless I change me, no matter where I go, I'm going to keep bringing myself and this pattern is going to keep repeating. But there's another dimension of it, I think, too, um, which maybe is something uh, somewhat opposite, um, which is sometimes the only way to discover who you really are is by leaving home, is by getting outside of your comfort zone, is by leaving what you know. Right? That's in part why Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, God tells him, Lech lecha me'aretzecha mimolatecha mibeta vicha el ha'eretz asher areka. Go from your father's house from uh, your land, from um, from your birthplace, um, to the land that I will show you, right? Abraham can't go to the promised land unless he first leaves home, right? Um, and uh, uh, so that's, a, that's, I think, an important thing to remember about Jacob is those two dimensions. It's impossible for him to really know who he is outside of his original context and also he needs to know that outside of his original context, he's still who he is. And he wrestles with that. So one of the things that I love about this text, and we're really just in the first verse, is that interplay. And I found that to be so true in my life, that I've gone to new situations and found the same problems, the same patterns, the same issues repeating themselves. And after a while, you start to wonder, am I just... Do I just keep on encountering jerks? Or is there something happening in my heart? But the other side of it is, I've always been a person who loves traveling. I love getting out of home. I love, I went um, on uh, six, seven cross-country bus trips with uh, um, an organization called USY on Wheels. Um, You know, try to travel as much as I can. I lived in, you know, overseas, lived in Israel for, for a while. And part of the reason we do things like that is because um, it's really the only way to truly learn who we are. Right? So that's really what's, what's happening with Jacob here. He's set out for Haran. So not only is he leaving home, but in a way he's actually going back home. Right? He's going to his mother's birthplace. So there's a dynamic there of leaving home, but also going back home. He came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Okay. So I want to pause here. I want to look at a couple of commentaries to this, to, uh, to, to where we are. Um, first is the issue of leaving home. So if you look at uh, text number one here, I love this. On page two. 
this is a book called The Genesis of Ethics by Burton Vysotsky, who's a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Jacob left home with a dubious legacy. From his father, he had learned a dangerous passivity, a blindness that came with the feeling of being overshadowed. His brother, Esau, bore him an enmity earned of Jacob's continual undermining of his elder brother's inherent good nature. And from his mother, Rebecca, Jacob carried with him an outlandish notion of destiny, a sense of privilege that was his to have at any cost. So that is a lot to hold inside your heart. Right? So the, the hymn that he's leaving, or thinks that he's leaving, and the hymn that he's going to discover when he's away are all of those things melded into one. That last one, I think, is a really powerful one, by the way, um, because um, as, a, as a parent, I've, I've, I've discovered this, and I'm sure most of you have as well. You're constantly in this tension between wanting to um, uh, praise your child and um, give them accolades for the things they do, which, you know, I mean, uh, um, singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star is, like, not such a huge accomplishment, but when you're 23 months old, it, like, feels like a huge accomplishment to the parents who are singing, and to the kid, too. So you're torn between this, um, do, I, do I praise and give accolades um, um, for these accomplishments, but the flip side of that is that uh, it creates, it can create within a child a sense of, unless I have high achievement, I will never meet my parents' expectations of me. My parents won't uh, celebrate me, my parents won't love me, my parents won't cherish me, um, unless, unless I um, do things that please them. Right? So Jacob is carrying that with him. There's a great book like that um, uh, called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, Alice Miller, Alice Walker, Alice Miller, yeah, um, where she talks about it. About it, but he's carrying with him all this, all this guilt and all this, uh, and, and all this tension and all this um, insecurity. The manipulations and deceptions that his mother taught him would carry him directly to her father's house, right? And that's the reason he's leaving. Right? He knows why he's leaving home. He doesn't have any illusions that he's an innocent party here. Right? He knows that what he did on some level is wrong, right? and so he's escaping, and he knows that. There, Jacob would find love and deception in his own turn without Rebecca to protect him. So what we know is going to happen eventually to Jacob, um, which we're not going to study tonight, is that everything that he dished out in his young life, he's going to get back. And that is part of the trial of Jacob and part of the trial of us all. Right? That in some way, whatever it is that we put out in the world, we get back. And so the, the question that meets us at every moment is, what are we prepared to uh, receive back in relation to what we're putting out into the world? Right? Jacob doesn't consider that. There, he would play the victim for almost two decades until he had suffered sufficient penance for the sins against his own family he committed throughout his youth. Now, there's a great book uh, about Jacob specifically by Yair Zakovich, um, who says this, People can flee their pursuers while never breaking free of their conscience and past. Right? How true is that? Isn't that exactly what we're talking about? Right? We can run away from that jerk rabbi who just started here, right? Um, but we won't... <laughs> but we won't run away from the issues that we're struggling with that lead us to interact so negatively with that person. 
right? We won't run away from our conscience about how we behave. We won't run away from our past. We carry all that with us. Okay. And then we get to our passage. So he runs away from home, and he comes upon a certain place and stops there for the night, for the sun had set. Right? The Hebrew of there is, is an amazing uh, phrase in Hebrew. If you, if you are able to follow along down in the Hebrew at the bottom, Yud, uh, uh, verse 11. The Hebrew is, Vayifga b'makom. Vayifga is like he collided with it. Right? It's not just he like, you know, was wandering along. He's like, oh, this is a nice place to rest for the night. Right? He hit it. Right? And bamakom is an interesting word too. Because what can you tell me grammatically about bamakom? Anybody know their Hebrew well enough to be able to tell me? What can you tell me grammatically about bamakom? The definite. It's a definite in the place. Right, right. So... Uh, it's definite, right? The, now the text, you know, if you ever looked at a Torah scroll, you know that there's no vowels and no punctuation. So it could be bet makom, which would be indefinite, which would, uh, which would be he, he came upon a place. But the uh, Masoretic text, the, the, um, the 10th century vocalization of the text, which has been taken uh, by uh, most religious traditions as authoritative, looks at it this way, uh, and probably correctly, most biblical scholars uh, say, as the original intention, this is Bamakom specifically, he came upon the place. There's something specific, something unique about the place that he came upon, and he ran into it. So here's what Aviva Zornberg says about that. Aviva Zornberg is a great teacher of Torah. Um, she's still alive, lives in Israel. Um, I think originally is from England. Uh, she's written, I think, two books, one on the book of Genesis and one on the book of Exodus. Um, both are magnificent, um, and if you haven't read them, you should. Um, the one on Genesis is called The Beginning of Desire. So here's what she says. Dramatic, unexpected encounter happens here in space and time. He collided with a certain place. The word vayivga suggests a dynamic encounter with an object that is traveling toward oneself. So just pause it for a second. If you were here last week, you remember us talking about God's relationship with creation, the relationship with humanity, and we talked a little bit about how God um, doesn't use um, coercive power to create the world. God uses persuasive power to lure the world into becoming. Right? And in the same way, God meets us in each individual moment in our lives and tries to lure us toward the next best perfection of which we are capable. Right? That's God's function in the world. That's God's function in our lives. So that means God is actively reaching out to us in every moment. And I think that that goes along very well with what uh, Zornberg is saying here and with what the text, I think, is saying about what happens with Jacob. So Jacob is running away from home. He is frustrated. He's confused. He's scared. He's guilty. He's got a guilty conscience. And in that moment of fear and anxiety and doubt, God reaches out for him. God meets him in that moment and says, here, here are the possibilities of where you can go and what you can take. You might have a range of other possibilities that aren't the godly possibilities, but here are at least the godly possibilities. And indeed, each of us in every moment has that as well. We're met in each moment with a range of choices 
Some of those are good choices. Some of those are bad choices. Some of those are optimal choices. It's not always easy to know which is the optimal choice, which is the good choice, and which is the bad choice. But the optimal choice, at least according to, I think, the Torah and um, process theologians, is the godly choice. And so we have Jacob here being met by the, by the godly choice. And remember that uh, one of the names for God in the Jewish tradition is, anybody know? Makom, Hamakom, the place, right? So that wasn't necessarily biblical. I'm not sure that's what the biblical authors uh, had in mind. But for us, reading it and knowing that that's one of the names for God, and knowing also that probably it's an intention of the authors of the text that uh, that 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 there is divinity that Jacob is meeting in this moment, we can I think see that uh, much that connection much more strongly that he hits God. Okay. The force of the meeting is palpable but mysterious. Leaving all support systems behind him, Jacob moves into the world of night, of the night. Here, nothing is clear. All is shifting, phantasm, illusion. And here, paradoxically, Jacob finds his ground of truth. The ground of truth is the very meaning of the certain place that Jacob suddenly encounters. In the narrative in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which is a, uh, um, uh, a um, late, ancient, early medieval uh, text, God met him there. And why is he called the place? Because in every place where the righteous are, there he is with them. I want to take that a little bit further than what Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer says. It says, wherever the righteous are, there he is with them. But Psalm says, Imo anochi betsara, that God is with us in each and every painful moment. Right? And um, uh, there's a famous Hasidic tradition, and the um, author of it, um, I believe, is Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, um, um, although I can't, uh, it's escaping me at the moment, says, um, Where is God found? Wherever we let God in. So that's what's happening here, right? Where God is in the place wherever those who need God bring God in. Wherever godly people bring God in. And so this is a moment in Jacob's life where he's seeking himself. He's seeking who he is. He's seeking who he's going to be. This is the moment in which he needs to meet God. And so he goes to this place, and we actually, we, we, uh, um, in the, so we read in the text that um, um, he stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Um, and um, the rabbis of the Talmud say that uh, that is an, um, a metaphor for prayer. Right? He prayed there. Um, and they say, they go further, that uh, Jacob instituted the evening prayers. You know, Jews pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And the rabbis of the Talmud say um, each of those services was instituted by, um, by one of the, rabbi, by one of the uh, patriarchs. Abraham instituted the morning service, Isaac the afternoon service, Jacob the evening service. And they derive that from here. So the act of letting God in, in a way, is an act of prayer. That doesn't mean necessarily going to synagogue to pray but opening ourselves up in moments of pain and doubt and anxiety, the dark moments which Jacob is in. It's the dark of nights, right? That's not an, an accident of the text. In the dark moments to say, 
I need help. I need guidance. Right? And that's where we are met with, the, with, with, with God's call. That's where we're met with God's Lord. So he takes one of the stones of that place and he puts it under his head and lays down in that place. And he has a dream. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and angels of God were going up and down on it. And the Lord was standing beside him and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying I will assign to you and to your offspring. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. All right, so this is a very opaque text. And the first thing you'll notice is that I titled the text uh, Climbing Jacob's Ladder, but the translation that we have here says it's a stairway. Okay, so... The truth of the matter is that ladder, even though it's a uh, you know very catchy uh, Pete Seeger song and uh, and all sorts of things, um, is probably not what Jacob's dream was about. It probably wasn't a ladder in the sense of what we see a ladder being. It was probably more like a stairway. It uh, is taken from uh, uh, the the Hebrew word is a is a sulam, um, and uh, the Babylonian word that's related to is is a stairway. If you can imagine, if you ever if you ever seen when you study like an ancient history. Um, You've seen uh, like a Babylonian ziggurat. You know what I'm talking about? Um, if you ever saw Ghostbusters, um, <laughs> the like final scene where they're uh, fighting Zul um, is on a you know a ziggurat with a stairway going up, right? So so that's the image here. I think is borrowed from that tradition of a stairway rooted in earth going up to sky, um, and angels are going down and up on it. Right. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this dream is supposed to mean, but there are just a couple of things, uh, and, I'm, and I'm open to hearing your interpretations uh, of it also. But there's just, uh, just one thing to keep in mind. Psychologists say that, um, that our dream, there's different theories about, uh, uh, in, in psychology about what dreams are, um, but one of the theories uh, that, that, that I've heard that I think is, um, has borne out um, to be meaningful in my life is that everything in your dream is you. Right? So if you dream about the beautiful woman that you saw, uh, saw earlier in the day, right? That's actually, you're actually projecting yourself in that dream and there's something about you that resonates in that image. Right? So all the images that we have in our dreams are actually us, parts of us. It's interesting to know that in most people's dreams they don't actually see themselves in the dream. You just see projections of other people and what you see. So, um, so what Jacob is dreaming here is, um, I think, uh, from, the, from the Torah's perspective, a projection of his unconscious. He's seeing himself. Right? And so if you see uh, angels going up the ladder and down the ladder, and you know who Jacob is, um, I think it's not unfair to say that he's projecting a, um, a duality of himself. Right? There's a part of him that is really sunk low and a part of him that really wants to reach for the stars, a part of him that's mired in doubt and fear and guilt, and a part of him that feels like he's destined for great things. And he sees both parts of himself in the angels that are ascending and descending that ladder. He also could see aspects of his life. He could see that he is going to um, have failures and he's going to have successes. And what, so I, I don't know exactly what 
the stairway means and what the symbolism of the angels is. The rabbis thought that it was talking about the angels that were going to escort him um, uh, from the land of Israel to the border of the land of Israel, um, and then angels that were going to take him uh, from the border of the land of Israel to Haran and then back. Um, so that could be what it, uh, what the dream is referring to. But I like to think that it's something uh, more psychic going on with Jacob. So here is um, um, uh, what uh, Aviva Zornberg uh, um Where do I want to see? Let's see. Um, that's where I. That's where I am numerically, but I don't think that's where I want to be. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, okay. So here, look at number five. As Jacob goes out into a world of darkness and exile, order and coherence are endangered. To sleep in a holy place is to betray an ideal of heroic stability and consciousness. If I had known, I would not have slept. We'll get to that in a minute. But God wants this sleep. God's stage manages the abrupt darkness so that Jacob will sleep and dream here. And at the heart of the dream will be an image of his own sleeping body, with angels querulously attacking the disgrace of his divided self, of the king in his council chamber and asleep in the corridor. Right? That's who Jacob is in his own mind. He is both the king in his council chamber and the fool asleep in the hallway. And in all the confusion, the oscillation registered by the satirical angels, God will stand firmly by him, proclaiming solidarity, a secret order in the chaos. So here is the image. You have angels running up and down, and there's chaos and, and confusion, and that's what Jacob has in his life, and in the center of it is God. And God opens up expansive possibilities for Jacob in precisely that moment of confusion and disorder. If you remember what we were talking about in Genesis last week, about how, how creation comes from the chaos, comes from the tohu vavohu. Those are the tools through which God creates the world because it turns out that darkness and chaos and pain, even though they're not good things, are also from time to time, the place where all creativity and all novelty and all learning comes from, right? We don't learn by, uh, by coasting through life in an easy fashion, right? We learn through the struggle. We learn through the challenge, right? And so God stands in the middle of that tumultuous stairway to say to Jacob, I am here. I am with you. You have a place to go. You have a direction in your life. You're not always going to be conflicted, but honor the conflict because that's the only way you're going to be able to move forward. And so what God says to him is amazing, right? God, he's, he's in this tight place. He's in this constricted place. His head's surrounded by rocks, right? There's these angels going back and forth. And God says, you are going to, um, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. Um, I was the God of your ancestors. I'm going to be the God of your descendants. And you're going to have lots of descendants. They're going to spread out all over the world. Look at what um, uh, Yair Zakovich says, number seven. Whereas a moment previously, Jacob's world had suddenly been compressed by an all-encompassing darkness closing around his weary body, a vast world has now opened before him. Three axes now become apparent. The vertical connection between earth and heaven, 
the horizontal dissemination of Jacob's descendants in all four directions, and a temporal line embracing both past and future, reaching from Abraham and Isaac to Jacob and the generation that will issue from him. God meets Jacob in this moment of doubt and fear and says to him, the first thing you need to know is everything is going to be okay. And the second thing you need to know is that there's direction in your life. This isn't the mother's direction of I have this high standard for you. This is God's direction of this can be your destiny if you take hold of it in the right way. So that's what happens. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And I think maybe one of the greatest lines in all of the Torah. He says, Achen yesh Adonai v'makom hazev anochi lo yadati. Achen is uh, biblical for holy moly, right? Uh, OMG, right? Uh, really, right? Surely the Lord, it translates surely. It's like not, it's like, yeah, God was in this place and don't call me surely, right? It, it doesn't really capture it. So you have to understand. So surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it, right? Now, there's a couple things about that. The first is we know of Jacob, that he's this you know, pious, Torah-learning, tent-dwelling kind of meek guy in a way. And so the rabbis say, Rashi says, he says, I did not know it because if I had known it, I wouldn't have slept there, right? And so that's what Zornberg is saying when she's saying that God deliberately wants him to sleep there because he's not going to be able to experience the message, the um, reality, the lure that God's holding out for him if he is um, so tied up in his thought about what he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing. How true is that? That the, sometimes the only way to discover where it is we're supposed to be going, what it is we're supposed to be doing, who we are, is to get out of the way of ourselves. Right? That's why meditation is such a good practice. And I think Jewish prayer, in its ideal, is such a good practice too. Right? Because it's supposed to be a, a, um, a, a way of, of getting our heads out of the game. Right? And trying to hear the voice that's inside of us that we often drown out by trying to think through every moment and every decision, every time in our life. But the truth is that on a soul level, on a heart level, we actually always know what the right thing is to do. We just sometimes talk ourselves out of it. right? And th- that's a really good uh, trick. If you, ha- if you find yourself having to justify um, a course of action with a lot of argumentation about why that's the right course of action, chances are it's probably not the right course of action. Because if you, if you knew in your heart of hearts that this is the right thing to do, you wouldn't really have to justify it. It would just be right. That's not saying you shouldn't, you know, Plato says um, the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm not saying you shouldn't examine yourself. But I'm saying that, that often we get in the way of, uh, of, of where it is that we're supposed to be, go who we are supposed to be. Jacob had to go to sleep in order to have this dream. And from Jacob's point of view of who he's supposed to be, according to his mother, and what he's supposed to be doing, right, he wouldn't have done it. Right? And so surely God is in this place and I did not know it. And had I known it, I wouldn't have ever experienced God. Right? And that is, a, I think, a profound message for all of us. And it also speaks to the reality of our world, that we live in a God world. Right? And so many of us either don't see that reality on a regular basis or deliberately 
talk ourselves out of that reality on a regular basis, right? We look at the miraculous in the world and explain it away. That's not to say science isn't a good thing. I think it's a very good thing, right? But when we say all there is is what can be observed and quantified, and there's no mystery, no magical, not magic in, in like the hocus pocus sense, but I mean in the, in the awesome sense. There's no, there's no awe in the world. We lose something. That's something we can learn from little children. Because they haven't yet learned to live in a world of, of cynicism and explanation. Right? So they experience the world with, with, with wonder. They experience the world with awe. And so they actually are natural theologians. They have natural relationships with God that most of us as adults struggle to have. And that's what happens to Jacob here. He has to get out of his own way to experience God. I find that to be so real for me. That I, I have such trouble getting out of my own way to experience God in the world, to experience the holy in the world, and therefore to, I think, um, do what I'm called to do as a Jew in the world in terms of my relationship with other people, the relationship with the planet, um, because I have trouble getting out of my own way. I think all about what I need, what I want, um, what's good for me. Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gateway to heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He named that site Bethel. Just a little plug. I love it. I love it in movies. It's like the best part of the movie where like they say the title of the movie in the movie. Um, that's my favorite part. So they named the place Bethel. But previously, the name of the city had been Luz. And I think I heard that about the synagogue, that its original name was Luz. And they thought that that was too, you know, down because I'm kind of like loser. So they renamed it Bethel. And now it's the house of God. That's what Bethel means, by the way, in case you didn't know. Bethel, house of God. Jacob then made a vow, saying, If God remains with me, if he protects me on this journey that I am making and gives me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safe to my father's house, the Lord shall be my God. So here's the deal about Jacob. It doesn't seem to me that Jacob has actually learned a lot from this experience. (laughs) He's still bargaining. He's still bargaining, right? He's still, wheel, he's still wheeling and dealing. He's still uh, trying to uh, to um, to to get a you know to get a to get a bargain. Um, and I think that that's a reality for many of us, right? How often do we make some kind of like great um, uh, um, progress in our life? You know, we we you know we were great for that for that one month in january right eating what we were supposed to eat we made such good progress we were in the best shape of our lives the doctor was you know, marveled at us and then february rolls around and it all comes sliding back because the truth is this is a profound human truth that wisdom is easy insight is easy but change is hard right and jacob learns that here. He's going to learn it when he's in his father-in-law's house because all of uh, his uh, negative qualities are going to be projected outward onto him and he's going to have to face it. He's going to have to see it. right? What it looks like to continue being him. right? But here you have it. He learns something, he moves a step forward and as he moves a step forward he moves a step backward. Right? Um, 
The other thing that's really, I think, worthwhile to note here is in verse 21 where he says, I return safe to my father's house. Right? The Hebrew word there is um, uh, shalem. If I come in peace to my father's house, but shalom is from the Hebrew word root shalem, which means wholeness. If I return whole to my father's house. Now there's different ways of looking at wholeness, of course. There's physical wholeness. We know, we will see, that he doesn't return physically whole to his father's house. But I think he's talking about psychologically whole. Right? He sees projected in this dream the warring facets of his personality and his destiny and his past. And he says, what I really need in my life is balance. What I really need in my life is wholeness. What I really need in my life is peace. So there's a couple of things about that. The first is, how many of us are looking for that in our lives? Probably all of us in some level. And on some level, depending on how we define it, many of us will catch snippets of it and catch glimmers of it. But the reality is that it's actually a, um, a, a, a vain prayer. Because the moment we have wholeness in our lives, the moment we have completion in our lives, is the moment we no longer live. Right? It's the... Uh, um, I don't know if this is actually a statement or is just in Die Hard, right? Uh, but Alexander wept for he had no more worlds to conquer, right? This is the last world to conquer, is shalom, is wholeness, peace. And so what happens when you actually attain it? There's nothing left to do, right? So Jacob, this is still part of his bargaining. This is still part of his, you know, if I just like game the system enough, I'll get exactly what I want, Right? And that's part of the, the failure of Jacob, I think, is, uh, is, is the flawed goal. The goal, I think, is not necessarily wholeness. The goal is not necessarily shalom. Right? The goalness is purpose. Right? That, I think, is what God is reaching out to him to do, is say, um, live out your purpose. Live your life in service. Do good. Sow integrity. Right? Do what you're called to do in the world, but peace? You're never going to get that, so stop praying for it. But yet he continues praying for it. So, um, uh, look at text number 10, Zorenberg again. In his vow, Jacob added bishalom, safe and peace, to the words of God's promise. His concept of return involves an idea of wholeness. Here I want to just say, as we finish this piece, and we'll look at the next piece just really quickly to, to see where Jacob ends up. But I want to point out this one Hasidic commentary on this uh, narrative, okay? Because I think it's beautiful. It's from a text called the Degel Machane Ephraim, uh, number eight. There is in this, because the Hasidic masters are great at seeing the psychological dimension of the Torah and the characters in the Torah. So they see every character in the Torah as like a typology of a kind of person that we might want to be or might not want to be. Right? And so they read Jacob's story no, no differently. So, so he says this, There is in this passage a secret of greatness and lowliness about which the Baal Shem Tov taught. For, quote, the heavenly creatures go back and forth, which is a quotation from Ezekiel, and it is impossible to always stand on one level. Right? If we meld these commentaries, basically what it's saying is Jacob's dream, this moment in Jacob's life is an analogy for the fact that what we should really hope for in our life is constant motion. 
We should be constantly growing and knowing that sometimes we'll fall. But when we fall, it's actually an opportunity to continue growing. Jacob doesn't get that. He's looking for shalom. But what he really should be looking is the honest symbolism of his dream. So it's a, um, uh, it's a, a, a secret of greatness and lowliness. It's impossible to always stand on one level. One can only go up or down. But the descent is for the sake of ascent. That's a powerful Hasidic uh, idea that anytime we reach a spiritual, emotional descent in our life, maybe even a physical descent in our life, it's not that it's happening in order to teach you something. It's not that it's happening, and so it's a good thing because it teaches you something. But depending on how you approach it, there are ways we can grow and ways we can learn in our life, even from the darkest moments. That's what it's saying. The descent can be for the sake of ascent, if we let it. As the Baal Shem Tov taught, this is hinted at the verse, Jacob left Beersheba, that is, when a tzaddik, a righteous person, falls from his level and disconnects from his source and went toward Haran, that is, he falls to a low place, Haran, um, where Rebecca is from, is sort of seen as the seat of uh, you know, depravity because it's not the land of Israel, so he falls to a low place. He had a dream, a stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky. That is to say, the descent implied by the phrase set on the ground is in actuality a stairway upon which one can ascend to a higher level. Your lowest point, if you look at it the right way, can be a stairway for ascending to a higher level. For descent is always for the sake of ascent. And this is what is meant by its top reach to the sky for one can reach an even higher level than one was at before, right? Sometimes it's impossible to grow. It's impossible to be at an even higher level, a more integrated level, uh, a, a new improved you unless you encounter that challenge. And angels of God were going up and down on it. See, all tzadikim, all righteous people act this way. They all go up and down on the stairway, right? The typology of a righteous person is that they go up, and they go down, and they go up, and they go down, and that's actually a model for what we should strive to be doing in our life. Going up and going down, and not to get deterred by the times where we are down, because we can move from them and reach a higher level from them. If you take this to its extreme, and some Hasidic uh, masters did, some of them would, uh, would, would gorge on like pork, um, in order to uh, re- feel a state of real spiritual lowliness. Um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting this as a practice, I'm just saying, right, you could take this to its extreme, you could take this to a ex- uh, physical extreme and do self-mortification. I don't think that's really what they're talking about here. I think they're just talking about an attitude and approach to life. It's not about perfection. It's not about completion. It's about always going up and down and appreciating the climb and appreciating the descent. But one can only ascend to this kind of height when he strips himself of the pretense of knowledge. And this is what is meant by, Surely the Lord is present in this place, and I did not know it. There's a kind of greatness in, I did not know it, because that is where God is. For if one feels he knows with complete knowledge, then he will see himself as having already attained his greatness. And if I feel like I know everything, then I have nowhere left to grow. I have nowhere left to go. Right? Those are the worst people in the world, by the way. The people who feel like, who say, you know, uh, um, it, it, it's worse when it's religious people who, who say they feel like they know everything in the world. But, um, but that's the truth, right? When we feel like we have all the answers, we have nowhere left to grow. We have nowhere left to know. The beginning of all knowledge is curiosity, is the knowledge of what you don't know. Right? And the beginning of all self-transformation is the knowledge of um, where you are not yet at. 
right? And so that's why um, uh, Jacob had to not know. He had to um, uh, say, um, uh, this is something, this is, I, 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 um, uh, I don't know. For if one feels he knows with complete knowledge, then he will see himself as having already attained true greatness. This is the meaning of Rashi's comment, if I had known that God was here, I would not have gone to sleep. For greatness requires escaping the mind. We talked about that. That is why it says that Jacob was shaken, and he said, and understand all this because I was brief. That, that's brief for the Hasidic masters. Right? So Jacob was, was shaken because he had a realization of what he didn't yet know and where he had yet to grow. Right? And that, I think, is a reality for all of us that if we abandon the pretense of knowledge, that's where real learning and real transformation comes. If we abandon certainty, that's the only way we can reach the next level in our life. But Jacob continues uh, in his life with this uh, um, illusion that he's going to reach wholeness, he's going to reach completion. And that, I think, comes to a crest in uh, Genesis 32, which we'll, which we'll close with uh, tonight. Um, and we'll try to go through it very quickly, um, even though you could spend a long time just on this text. That same night he arose, and taking his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven children, he crossed the forty of Yavok. So the context for this is that he's uh, spent 20 plus years in uh, uh, his father-in-law's house. He's now married with uh, four wives um, and has... What's that? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, yes. Um, meant something different then than it does now. But uh, he's, anyway, four wives, um, a whole brood of kids, and he's going back uh, to uh, the land of Israel, his father's house, um, but he gets wind that his brother Esau is uh, coming to say hi. <laughs> and he thinks that this is Esau's big moment of retribution. That he's been building up this rage and this vengeance in him for 20 years. And he's going to you know, lay down the gauntlet when he sees Jacob. So Jacob is afraid again. Because his whole idea of, of, of being whole, um, of overcoming his past, right, is about to run smack into him. Right? He thought he ran away from it. He thought he was gone. He thought he accomplished it. And here it is. Come, his past is coming out to meet him again. Right? I said this over Shabbos. Right? History is not even history. It's not even past. Right? And that's true for Jacob. His past keeps on coming out to greet him. So, um, so the, that night, he had divided his family into two camps so that uh, uh, there might be an avoidance of a lot of loss of life. And he took his uh, two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 children. He crossed the fort of Yavok. And after taking them across the stream, he sent across all his possessions. Um, that reminds me of uh, The Empire Strikes Back, when, J- when uh, Luke Skywalker is training with Yoda, and uh, they're on uh, Dagobah. Is this too nerdy for everybody? Yeah, they're on Dagobah, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, Luke senses that there's a, there's a sort of a evil power of a cave nearby. So he... Um, uh, so he uh, wants to go into the cave, and he says to um, um, so he goes in. He's got his lightsaber on him, and Yoda uh, says, uh, "Your weapons, you will not need them in there." Um, and uh, and and uh, Luke says, um, "Well, what will I have?" And he says, "Well, whatever you take with you, right?" So that's what Jacob is doing here. Jacob is left all alone, 
Right? Jacob abandons everything on the other side of Yavok. He said, I'm going to be here by myself. He, there's something, he knows that something's going to happen here, right? And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. Is there anything surprising about that statement? About that uh, verse, maybe compared to what you've learned? Yeah, why is it a man when we've always been taught it's an angel? So that's an interesting question. We don't really know who this is. Sometimes in the, in the Bible, um, the word ish is used to refer to angels and can be interchanged. And sometimes it's a man. We don't really know. So this could be Asaph, who came out early to fight a battle, right? This is trial by combat, right? Um, it, and it could be an angel. And if it's an angel, we don't know what the angel's doing, who the angel is. We don't know his identity. And later, Jacob tries to get his identity, and he doesn't answer. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, I, this is what one of my teachers calls promiscuous pronouns. We don't really know who's the he in here. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he wrenched Jacob's hip, hip at its socket so that the socket of his hip was strained as he wrestled with him. Right Now, if I were saying, okay, this mysterious being that's wrestling with Jacob is a manifestation of either Jacob or Esau based on what happens in their wrestling match who would you say he more likely represents how does he try to win the fight by grabbing the leg by, 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 by punching him in the groin right that's what he does that's not a very nice tactic so I would say that in some ways uh, at least from that image Jacob is wrestling with himself or at least his old self. Then he said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. But he answered, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Right? Again, that to me sounds like classic Jacob. Said the, uh, taking advantage of a person who's in a really you know, compromised situation. Said the other, what is your name? That's sort of weird, right? That uh, um, it just like kind of came at random and wrestled with a guy and don't even know who it is you're wrestling with. <laughs> what is your name? He replied, Jacob. I think he does know. Uh, said he, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with beings divine and human and have prevailed. So here's, I think, the message of the story. The crux of the story is the change of name from Jacob to Israel. Now remember what I said at the beginning, that in the Bible, names are pregnant with meaning. Right? So... If his name before was Deceiver, Ankle Grabber, his name now is God Wrestler. Jacob asked, pray tell me your name. So he wants to know this other guy's name, but he said, you must not ask my name. And he took leave of him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, meaning I've seen a divine being face to face, yet my life has been preserved. The sun rose upon him and he passed Penuel, limping on his hip, that is why the children of Israel to this day do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the socket of the hip, since Jacob's hip socket was wrenched at the thigh muscle. So it ends with a piece of praxis telling us why we can't eat filet mignon. But, um, but, the, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is that Jacob in some way wrestles with a mysterious being that is actually, just like the dream was, some kind of reflection manifestation of himself. Who he was who he is, and who he wants to be. And his goal in doing it, I think, is this uh, idea that he has that he reveals in the latter story, the stairway story, of wholeness. He wants to leave behind who he was, become someone totally new, and once he becomes that new person, then everything will be okay. Right? So this is... Um, uh, 
two texts that we'll close with by Aviva Zornberg, and then um, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll give my punchline, and then um, I'll, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. Another Midrashic tradition, however, suggests this angel is called Israel. Right? Not that he is wrestling with a person who names him Israel, but the angel gives Jacob the angel's name. Perhaps because that is the purpose of his mission, to show Jacob in a therapeutic encounter how to become Israel. Since angels are named for their mission, this may be the reason for the angel's response to Jacob's question, what is your name? Why do you ask my name? Uh, why do you ask my name? Jacob already knows in himself the purpose of the angel's coming, for essentially he is facing himself, the desired, feared necessity of a new name. He has summoned the angel to save him from the condition of being Jacob. Right? That is such a profound statement. He's wrestling an angel to save him from the condition of being Jacob. And how many of us have tried a new thing, tried on a new persona, bought a new item, a new article of clothing, a new uh, purchase, we've moved to a new place and taken a new job, we've dumped our first wife and gotten a new, whatever it is, right? Because we're trying to escape from the condition of being who we were and becoming someone else. But the truth is, all of it is artificial because unless we actually deal with the reality of who we were and who we are, we can't ever be who we will become. So he summoned the angel to save him from the condition of being Jacob. Evenly matched, Jacob wants to prevail, to absorb himself into the power of his partner. He wants to become Israel by mastering the angel. Ultimately, of course, Jacob and Israel both remain his names, right? There is actually no clear victor in this wrestling match. Right? Jacob doesn't win. And so Jacob is actually still left with a split identity. He's Jacob and he's Israel. The dialectical confrontation between his two personae is never entirely resolved. The passionate power of confrontation and the sophisticated knowing from behind both remain essential aspects of the man and the nation. It betrays Jacob's ongoing conflict, the dilemma of double identity, and his desire for unambiguous resolutions. He wants clarity. He wants wholeness. He wants a lack of ambiguity, but his blessing is actually that he contains multitudes. His blessing is actually that he is both Jacob and Israel, and in a certain sense, he has always been Jacob and Israel. He just didn't realize it, and he never actually fully appreciated it. We know he didn't fully appreciate it because toward the end of his life, Pharaoh greets him. He moves down to Egypt to be with the grandkids, and uh, Pharaoh says to him, uh, how old are you? And Jacob says, um, long and bitter have been the years of the days of my life, or the days of the years of my life. Right? Jacob never experiences his life as a blessing. He never experiences life in wholeness precisely because he never comes to terms with who he is. He never grapples with his reality. He never opens himself truly to learning and growing because he's always striving to be something he can never become and no person can ever become, which is perfect. Jacob-Israel is indeed an uneasy combination. Jacob desires both knowledge and power, both subtlety and potency. He contends essentially with himself, with his dread, his sense of evil, his need to control and structure a cogent world. 
safe from the mystery of his father's binding. Seeking wholeness, he struggles for a new sense of the good that will endure through all evil. The blessing of being Jacob is that we contain all of these conflicting parts of our personality. And instead of trying to abandon them, transcend them, try to become something that is different and other than them, I think what this text is inviting us toward is utilizing everything that we are in the service of something greater. And knowing that only when we hold out uh, impossible standards for ourselves and assume that unless we reach that standard, we aren't being who we want to be, that's a recipe for an unhappy life and an unfulfilled life. So Jacob is seeking a fulfilled life precisely in a way that's counterproductive to leading a fulfilled life. And the way I think it offers for us to lead a fulfilled life is one in which we honor who we are, in which we open ourselves up to God's lure in each moment in our lives, in which we struggle and grapple and wrestle with the warring parts of our personality and know that growth comes from the struggle. And that we use all of that in the service of the divine. Thank you.